0: I next met with Miss Cherise Gleason and Dr. Sagar Loneal, who presented a 45-year-old man from their practice. Miss Gleason described the initial clinic encounter.
1: The first visit, it was he and his wife, and he's a fairly young man, especially to have myeloma, and he presented with renal complications and had been very healthy, exercises regularly. Works full time and hadn't been sick before. So I think, you know, when we get one of these patients, they come in with no symptoms and found that he had this renal dysfunction on a regular exam. And so they're surprised when they end up in our clinic. And we're talking about myeloma, and it's something that he hadn't heard of before.
0: Sagar, what was his life situation?
2: He was a pretty productive, busy guy. Took a fair amount of time off every year with his family to do things in North Dakota or South Dakota or something like that. So very outdoorsy, very active, very much a family man, well known in the community from which he came. And I think, you know, one of the important points in this patient and in many patients that we deal with that Sharice brought up was the idea that patients who are generally well and are high functioning, when they get confronted with this, it's a real challenge because everything we do is going to make them sick. You can't make them better because they feel well, right? You're talking about long-term gains, not short-term gains.
0: So, Sagar, maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of the medical issues that you were assessing when you first saw him and trying to determine what to do. What were some of the key points?
2: Well, I think, as Sharice brought up, his real reason that he came to medical attention was renal dysfunction. And so he had a creatinine of, I think, somewhere around 1.8, 1.9 in that ballpark there, which was very different. This guy was one of those, goes to executive health every year and had normal kidney function before all this with a significant amount of proteinuria. So for us, the real issue was management in a very rapid timeframe to reverse renal dysfunction and spare him long-term kidney dysfunction. I think one of the real challenges we struggled with with him And with many of our other patients is when they come in having read a bunch of stuff on the internet, most of which is wrong or it's outdated, you have to re-educate patients on the reality of what this disease means in 2014 as opposed to what it meant in 2000.
0: And what exactly did you say in that regard? And for example, I wouldn't be surprised if you said, is it possible I could be cured?
2: Yeah, you're right. You know me well enough to know that I'm certainly going to talk about that. I think what we tried to explain to him was that myeloma in many ways can be a chronic disease as opposed to, you know, one where it's one shot and you're done kind of situation, and that our goal was really to reduce the disease burden as much as we could and then try and maintain that low-level disease burden with the hope that we can ultimately get to cure I think the challenge is that patients look up on the web and they see median survival of three years, and I think we just have to bring them up to date with what modern therapy can do for patients.
0: So you determined that he was at higher risk because of the so-called 414 variation. What do you tell patients about prognosis in this situation, and what did you tell him? I think we would tell
2: them that we expect standard risk patients, and he wasn't one of them, but we expect standard risk patients to live in excess of six to seven years, good risk, hyperdiploid patients greater than 10 years, and for high risk, the real question is we don't know because the maintenance strategies that we've talked about before are so new, we don't know how long they're gonna last, but we know that patients are living longer than what we thought five years ago.
0: Cherise, how did you assess sort of his coping strategies? You know, what were the things that he was doing and what did you try to foster in him in terms of him sort of dealing with a very difficult situation?
1: Well, I think part of it is him gaining confidence in the team, that we were there for him and that we have support in place. We also had him meet with our social worker for he and his wife. As it turned out, this particular patient also was a friend of one of our other patients, another young patient, actually. And so there was a lot of conversation between the two of them as well. But I think, you know, for him, especially early on, we had very long visits because he came with a list of questions every time, and it was just answering the questions, supporting him through, and taking it a step at a time, because patients can get very overwhelmed when they first come in, and we hit them with, well, you've got this disease, going through the risk factors, talking about the treatment, and then also, in this case, talking about having a transplant.
0: So it's interesting that you're starting out with a 45-year-old man, because, of course, myeloma is a disease more commonly, you see a much older patient, we'll talk about some of the patients you've taken care of. Right now, Sagar, strategically, globally, how do you think about initial management of myeloma, both in a younger patient like him, as well as an older, you know, 75, 80-year-old patient?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what we are trying to do is an alkylator sparing approach. And so when appropriate, our combination of RVD is where we're going as part of frontline therapy for patients that are older and may not be necessarily transplant eligible or may have other frailties, I think the question is, do you modify RVD or do you go with something as simple as Lendex, as we saw from the first trial? And a lot of that really depends on comorbidities that a patient brings and genetic risk that we identify when we first make that diagnosis.
0: What about the issue of transplant saga? What is the actual strategy of transplant? When is it used? Why is it used? And in whom is it used?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a great question. It's a question in evolution. And if you had asked me five years ago with the great responses and CRs that we were getting with RVD and with other treatment strategies, I would have said, I think in five years, transplant's going to be dead. I've reevaluated that position in light of the iceberg. And I think that's really the way we have to think about it. When we're satisfied with a complete remission, which we can get quite often with RVD or another triplet as part of induction, there's still a significant amount of disease burden left over. And so if we want to get to that cure or very, very long initial response, we have to get lower on that iceberg to ultimately have a chance at getting them to long, long, long durations of remission. And that's, to me, one of the benefits of a transplant.
0: And I guess we should point out that in using the transplant, what's therapeutic is the high dose of chemo, not the transplant itself. An autologous transplant, which is what a younger patient like this might be considering, is basically the strategy to try to sort of salvage bone marrow function. Is that the way you explain it to patients? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, it's really more of a rescue than a transplant.
0: And I would imagine this was a consideration in this patient but also you have the issue of renal failure. First of all, Sagar, what's the mechanism of why you see renal failure in myeloma, and how does it change the way you would approach a patient, for example, like this one?
2: Well, there are several mechanisms that can be responsible for renal failure, or renal dysfunction in a newly diagnosed patient. The most common is that the light chains that are produced by the plasma cell basically clog up the kidneys, they clog up the tubules. That's not the only reason, but it's by far the most common. Other things can include hypercalcemia with volume depletion or dehydration can cause a renal failure. Patients can get urate nephropathy from high levels of uric acid, you know, where there's a lot of cell turnover. Even something where patients have light chains in their blood and they get contrast for a CT scan as part of their workup. That can induce renal failure much more commonly in myeloma patients than in non-myeloma patients. And finally, at least among the common causes, the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ibuprofen, Aleve, all of those classes of medicines can contribute to kidney dysfunction in a myeloma patient, especially at diagnosis. And we can't tell you how many patients we've seen early on were seen by an orthopedist with back pain and told to take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen four times a day and presented with renal failure because that was really what did it. So that's sort of many mechanisms involved there. When we think about treatment, one of the goals, if it's light chain related, is quick response. Even in patients who present on dialysis with renal failure, if you can rapidly turn that around, there's greater than a 50% chance they can recover normal renal function and come off dialysis.
0: And how does the presence of renal failure affect your choice of drugs? So patients
2: that have renal failure all should get a proteasome inhibitor as part of their initial therapy. They should get corticosteroids, and I would argue this is one of the few situations where high-dose DEX probably does have a role, because the quicker you turn that around, the more likely you're to get a quick response and save kidney function. And in our view, we like triplets, as you've heard me say before. If a patient has a creatinine over 2.5, I'm probably going to favor thalidomide as the partner. If a patient has a creatinine of less than 2.5, I'm probably going to favor lenalidomide as the partner. And
0: why is that?
2: Well, lenalidomide is cleared through the kidneys, and so you do have to make dose reductions and dose modifications. You can reduce the dose for patients of lenalidomide early on, but in my mind, the downside of too much len in a patient with renal failure is prolonged cytopenias. And if your goal is to try and stay on schedule and keep them on therapy, you don't want to risk having to delay therapy
1: because of low counts.
0: Just use Thal and be safe and get the imid in. So what was the recommendation made for this man?
1: So we started him on RVD with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. And we did standard dosing. So he had lenalidomide, 25 milligrams, days 1 through 14. Bortezomib was 1.3 milligrams per meter squared in days one, four, eight, and 11.
0: That was IV or sub-Q? Sub-Q. It was
1: subcutaneous for him. And then dexamethasone, 20 milligrams days of and day after bortezumab, at least at the initial early cycles.
0: I'm curious, Cherise, what you told him as you were about to begin this therapy in terms of from a patient education perspective, what were some of the key things you were trying to emphasize to him?
1: So, again, with somebody who came to us with no side effects, we were going to give him side effects. So, you know, we went through each of the treatments and talked about things like peripheral neuropathy, those signs and symptoms of things that he should look out for to let us know that he was going to be assessed for that every time he came. And that was usually from our nurses in the infusion center when they were giving him treatment. We talked about dexamethasone side effects, kind of those highs, those lows. Talking about blood glucose levels, things like that, dietary changes, and then the things to expect with lenalidomide, overall fatigue with the combination treatment, things like that, keeping well hydrated.
0: And what exactly happened as he began to receive the therapy?
1: He actually did well. You know, it was a bit of a struggle, and as we see usually in the first one to two cycles, I think for patients, a lot is going on but he did well. He came through with minimal side effects. I think fatigue was probably the biggest one for him, and he still just pushed through trying to keep up with his normal activities.
0: So he was working?
1: He was, yes.
0: What about the issue of administration of bortezomib, Sagar? We did a survey recently of oncologists in practice and found that You know, initially, the subcutaneous route was studied in the relapse setting, but we found the oncologist, as in this case, was using sub-Q weekly often, although in this case, he got it twice weekly up front. What's been the thinking in that regard?
2: Well, I mean, I think what we saw from the pharmacokinetic data in the relapse setting was that there was no difference at all, and there was a much better safety profile, And while I may disagree with some of my colleagues that every question that you ask needs to be answered in every trial and in every combination, it was such a windfall in terms of reduced incidence of neuropathy and GI toxicity that there was no reason to have to recapitulate every study again with sub-Q versus IV.
0: What's the thinking about why you see so much less neuropathy with sub-Q? I've heard people talk about the peak level being lower.
2: Yeah, I think to me it's interesting because if you look at the total area under the curve for the drug, it's the same with IV versus sub-Q, but the peak is much lower. And to be honest with you, this to me is what I think is the same reason why the oral... Bortezomib, MLN 9708, or ixazomib—why it's got such a low incidence of neuropathy as well? Because it mirrors the sub Q, perhaps even a lower peak, but a longer exposure, resulting in the same area under the curve.
0: Cherise, what were you seeing in terms of peripheral neuropathy before this, when bortezomib was given IV? And have you kind of seen a change in your practice since you've been using it sub Q?
1: We've definitely seen a decrease in neuropathy. I think, you know, we had been using bortezomib for years because we had it early on in clinical trials as well. So we were used to managing the neuropathy, but you still could have some of that late onset neuropathy with the IV more than we see with the subcutaneous. So it's been really quite a decrease. We just don't see those grade threes like you used to see.
0: So in this situation of a young man, and I see that he went on to, as most young patients would, to receive an autologous transplant, Soccer, what actually happened to sort of his numbers, since that was really the main manifestation of the disease? as you gave him the RVD leading up to the transplant?
2: So he had a phenomenal response, almost completely normalized his renal function after two or three cycles of therapy. I think his baseline creatinine is somewhere around 1.4 now. So he didn't completely normalize, but it was much better than when he had started. And that happened relatively quickly. His myeloma numbers actually got better very quickly as well. He went into transplant with a near complete remission. And then we consolidated him with the transplant afterwards.
0: And as he started to get sort of moving towards the transplant, Cherise, what did you advise him in terms of what to expect with the transplant in terms of that experience?
1: Again, it was mainly focusing on that time in the hospital for our transplants. They're in the hospital for about two weeks. That was quite a change for somebody who had never been in the hospital before. We kind of walked through what to expect with getting the chemotherapy how many days afterwards we would expect counts to drop, and to talk to him about those things to expect. Our nursing staff on the floor is very good with keeping up with that with patients as well. But we encouraged him to continue the exercise so he was going into the transplant as fit as possible, and then once in the hospital to continue walking laps and keeping fit as much as possible, keeping up with his hydration, his caloric intake,
0: Sagar, what do you tell people in terms of the risks of this type of transplant in terms of mortality, major complications, and how long it takes them to sort of get back to normal?
2: Yeah, and you know, that's always hard to answer because as each myeloma itself may be different, patients and their responses to therapy can be quite variable as well. What I quote them in terms of mortality from the transplant itself is less than 1%, and that's our own data. When you look at You know, we do an average of 180 to 200 myeloma transplants a year for autos, and our 30-day mortality is less than 1%. So I think it's really quite good. I think the question is, what's the likelihood they're going to have any side effects versus significant side effects? And mostly mucositis, sores in the mouth and throat that limit them from the ability to eat and drink is the big one that they worry about. And if you look at our own examples at our center, about a quarter of patients get through And you look at them, and you can't tell you even gave them chemotherapy. And that's pretty good. They're a quarter that probably can't eat or drink for about four or five days. So they get the worst, and there's a quarter that gets the least, and then everybody else is somewhere in between. And how quickly they bounce back is really dependent on their motivation and their
0: internal strength, to be honest with you, because that plays a big role in this. Cherise, what actually happened with this man? What happened when he went through the transplant?
1: He actually did quite well. He had minimal mucositis. He was one of our champs at walking. I think he walked at least three miles a day on the floor doing laps. No real complications, no problems with infection that I can recall. And he was in about 14 days as planned and did well post-transplant as well.
0: So then he comes back to you all after having had this transplant. And the question is on the table in terms of continued treatment. And nowadays, in particular, after several major studies showed some benefit of it, a lot of patients in this situation are getting so-called maintenance therapy. As you saw him after transplant, what were your thoughts in that regard?
1: We had known for this patient that we would plan maintenance. Our group pretty much offers maintenance to most of our patients. And with that history of that translocation 414, we knew that we would want to have him on a maintenance post-transplant. So we actually restage our higher-risk patients a little bit earlier. We do it at day 60 post-transplant, again, with the bone marrow biopsy, 24-hour urine, and look at their disease response and then plan their maintenance at that point.
0: So what was his disease state saga after transplant, and what kinds of maintenance programs are utilized, and which one did you recommend to him?
2: So he was in a complete remission at day 60 after transplant, had totally recovered his counts, was starting to go into the office again at day 60, and was pretty functional. So he'd recovered really quite nicely. The strategy for patients with 414 translocation at our center has been the use of bortezomib as a maintenance approach. And we've got a relatively large series of these patients now that have done quite well with single-agent bortezomib maintenance. But given the fact that he presented with high ISS stage and renal dysfunction at the outset, he started a new wave of patients at our center who were getting what we call RVD consolidation for two cycles before we switched to a true maintenance approach. So he actually got RVD in a modified schedule for two cycles and then went on to single-agent bortezomib maintenance.
0: And what's his current situation?
2: So he is a year and a half out now, still on bortezomib maintenance. Has not had issues with neuropathy actually,
0: and is doing quite well. And how often does he receive the bortezomib? And again, sub Q.
1: It is sub Q, and he receives it every other week. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious, you know, I thought you were going to say, you know, you've published about so-called RVD maintenance, and I was thinking maybe that's what he would have gotten. Was that considered at that point?
2: So, you know, it's interesting. We are trying to sort of tailor our maintenance approach a little bit. And the RVD maintenance that you refer to, we use for patients with 17p deletion, where they're missing the p53 gene, or patients with karyotypic abnormalities, high-risk, hypodiploidy. But for the 414s, we find that bortezomib alone, especially after the RVD consolidation, seems to be pretty effective.
0: Now, the other option that's often considered, probably more commonly used, particularly I'm sure you would consider in patients without this kind of high-risk situation, is lenalidomide. Yep. What do we know about lenalidomide maintenance, and what situations do you use that?
2: So, lenalidomide maintenance has been evaluated in a couple of large randomized trials after autologous transplantation. And what we know from both of those trials is that the use of lenalidomide at either 10 or 15 milligrams without dexamethasone doubles how long patients stay in remission compared to the placebo arm. In one of those trials, there was an improvement in overall survival. In the European trial, there was not an improvement in overall survival. There have been other trials that have been published, one by Antonio Palumbo in the last year in the New England Journal, where he looked at post-transplant lenalidomide as well, also showed that same increase in duration of remission and hinted at an improvement in overall survival. It wasn't quite as clear as we all would have liked in that trial. So our approach is that for patients who don't have high-risk disease, where we would give them RVD. They don't have 414, where we would give them single-agent bortezomib. We use lenalidomide as single-agent maintenance in those patients.
0: And again, in that survey that I mentioned, we found extensive use of lenalidomide, particularly in sort of standard risk situations. What about the duration of treatment? How long are you planning to give it to this man? And typically, how long do you give it, for example, if you're using lenalidomide?
2: Lenalidomide, we treat with until progression or side effects. And so we don't give the one year like the French give, because in our view of the data, if you treat for one year, you only open yourself up for the risk of second malignancy. You don't open yourself up for the benefits of overall survival. For bortezomib maintenance, because of the challenges of having to come into the clinic to get that on a regular basis, we do that for three years and then follow patients with no maintenance therapy at all after that. And if we see something come back, we may add back in bortezomib again.
0: Cherise, what are some of the complications and side effects you've seen in patients receiving maintenance, either with lenalidomide or bortezomib?
1: I think that with lenalidomide long-term, we hear fatigue, ongoing issues with fatigue, especially early post-transplant. But then the other thing is diarrhea. We have a lot of issues with chronic diarrhea with lenalidomide that we have to manage with antidiarrheals or something prescription. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the biggest challenge that I see with that. Otherwise, it's very well tolerated. Patients like the fact that they can just take a pill Mm -hmm. and we dose it three weeks on, one week off.
2: And I think Sharice is being modest here, but her and Melanie from our clinic actually put together data that was presented at ASH that really demonstrated the ability of anti-cholesterol agents to really inhibit or completely abrogate the diarrhea associated with lenalidomide. They actually have some data at Ash where they showed an eighty percent reduction in diarrhea simply by adding in cholestyramine.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. So one other question about maintenance sagar. This man was in a complete response, so he had no evidence of disease. I have heard people question whether you need to continue treating patients in that situation. That kind of ties back to the iceberg thing you were talking about of tumor beneath the surface. Any thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that is that we should no longer be satisfied with conventional CR as an endpoint. I think if we treat everybody to conventional CR and then stop, there's going to be a significant fraction of patients that are going to relapse, and they're going to relapse relatively quickly. I think our goal really should be to talk about trying to get down to lower levels on that iceberg, MRD negativity by sequencing or by flow cytometry, and then we're going to have to randomize people to continuous therapy versus stopping therapy to see what the right break point is for when we've actually truly cured people.
0: So let's finish out talking about your 80-year-old man, I guess much more typical age-wise in terms of the kind of patients that are seen, and I see he presented in 2007. What was his situation?
1: He did. He came in with anemia and bone pain. And even though we do transplant patients well into their 70s in the United States, this was not a patient that we're going to transplant. So he went at that time on the RVD upfront clinical trial and actually completed his eight cycles and has been on lenalidomide maintenance ever since and recently had his 100th cycle and doing well in complete remission.
0: Wow. What's his lifestyle like and his quality of life?
1: He's very active. He exercises probably five times a week. Not a lot of other comorbidities, some hypertension. You know, he sees us in clinic once a month and has really tolerated it. He has had dose reductions over the course of the past seven years. So he's on low-dose lenalidomide at five milligrams. He did experience some of those GI issues with the diarrhea that we see. But otherwise, doing very well, minimal neuropathy, grade one, no pain.
0: Just in terms of the issue of transplant, Sagar, is there, I mean, people talk about, you know, well, you have to look at the physiologic age. But realistically, I don't think 80-year-old men are going to end up getting transplanted. Is there an age at which just the age alone will get you to not do a transplant? So
2: I think, you know, 75 is where we start to think twice. 77, 78 is probably where the line is. We've had colleagues try and push the line by saying, this 80-year-old looks like he's 50. Come on, come on, come on. And I think you're absolutely right that they may look like they're 80, but they age really, really quickly with high-dose melphalan. So I think you just have to be cautious.
0: What about in a situation such as an 80-year-old patient, of course, actually, when I think about it, he wasn't 80 when he was was diagnosed, I guess he was 73, but in any event, he was not considered a transplant candidate. In people who are not going to head for transplant saga, what are some of the common regimens that are considered? And you mentioned this big study that was just presented about a year or so ago, the so-called FIRST trial. What did they look at there, and what were the implications for managing older patients?
2: Yeah, it was a really interesting trial. It's the largest myeloma trial that's been done to date with about 1,600 patients, and there were three arms. One arm was Lendex continuous therapy. One arm was Lendex for 18 months, and then the third arm was MPT for also 18 months, basically. So there were two questions that were being asked in the first trial. One, is a non-melphalan-based induction as good as a melphalan-based induction, and two, is duration of therapy important when you're using Lendex? And what we saw really quite nicely in this trial was that the MPT arm and the Lendex fixed duration, 18 months only, looked very similar in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival. The group that got Lendex continuous therapy was clearly superior, both in terms of how long patients stayed in remission and they had a better survival compared to patients who got MPT. And so what I think that did, in my mind, was begin to kill melphalan, an oral low-dose melphalan for older transplant-ineligible patients. And I think it really raised the question, is Lendex a standard now for transplant-ineligible or what I would consider frail patients? And I would argue I think it is.
0: And we see in our surveys, though, that consistently there's still docs who are using the older kind of approach with the melphalan, Mm -hmm. hopefully as word gets out, particularly about this trial that might be less common. What about duration of treatment? We were talking earlier in the transplant situation that the philosophy now is A, with the iceberg thing, you want to drive the tumor down, but then B, you want to keep therapy going in your practices in general indefinitely. What about in the older patients, same kind of approach?
2: We do try to take the same kind of approach. The difference is that we look to see what are the hits we've taken from that patient by putting them on initial induction therapy. And if the hits are more than we would have liked, meaning they've gotten a lot more comorbidities, they've gotten a lot sicker, they're frailer, in that patient we may say, you know, we won this battle, let's let you recover and then fight again down the road. But in general, we do try and continue continuous therapy there as well.
1: But I think we tend to use lower doses, though, Mm -hmm. in those patients. And, you know, you want to use the lower dex dose, especially older patients. They're very sensitive to that. You can get a lot of myopathy. And so you really have to be careful with that. And I think as long as we dose appropriately and then monitor those side effects, we've been pretty successful.